If you'll join me, we will open to Hebrews 7, 22 to 28 for the scripture reading. This is page 1004 in the Pew Bibles. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Very, very exciting chapter this morning. Um, how many of you have heard a sermon, whether topical or going through the book of Hebrews, on Melchizedek? I'm just curious. So this is a smaller crowd than the first service, but more of you have heard of it, so you're smarter. Um, <clears throat> there was only seven in the last service. I was really surprised. So um, let's just skip it and go to Hebrews 8 then, um, since, you know, all... This is a chapter or a subject matter that actually most people tend to skip over. And um, the reason being is it's, it's, it's quite a challenging passage um, to, to go through. And just to give you an idea of how challenging it is, we're introduced to Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 10. But let's go back to chapter 5 and read verse 11, and it'll give you an idea as to uh, why this isn't spoken about all that often in churches. And it reads this. About this, we have much to say. He just introduced Melchizedek in verse 10, right? And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So when, when we're introduced, the very next verse says it's hard to explain. And then he mentions the name again in chapter 6. And so even the author himself of Hebrews is waiting until chapter 7 until he's finally like, okay, I guess we got to talk about this now, right? And then he's finally going to talk about it here in chapter 7. So Melchizedek has like a whole bunch of different beliefs as to what people think or think who Melchizedek is. One of those beliefs is that um, they think he's the pre-incarnate figure of Jesus Christ. Some believe he's uh, the Holy Spirit personified. Some believe he's just this Christian virtue. Um, others believe uh, that there, there are other, other ideas as to who he is. Um, an angel, for example. But what we need to remember is who the author wrote to. So the author of Hebrews is writing to a first century Jew, mostly. And if not a Jew, then someone who's very familiar with Judaism, which you and I are, are not. 
and that's not to say that we won't glean some spiritual application from this chapter, but we need to realize that we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper for that nugget. And so as we are mining for this nugget, we'll need to introduce some new uh, theological term for some of you, and for some of you this is not a new theological term, but the term typology. And so the term typology is defined as the means or methods of illustrating the persona and the work of Jesus Christ. So where the people, events, or practices of the Old Testament are then foreshadowed to a type of Jesus Christ, the anti-type Jesus Christ from the type. So for example, the person of Joseph in Genesis who gives us a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, that Joseph wasn't simply a person in the story of deliverance of, of, of people in Genesis, but he was a type who was pointing to Jesus, the anti-type, A-N-T-E, not anti. And so this type in the Old Testament is the representation of the anti-type, which is the reality we discover in the New Testament. And so the Old Testament is full of these types. Um, too many to go over in one sermon, and I'm just going to give you two. The first one I'm going to give you is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, and it reads this. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male a year old. And so this is speaking of the Passover lamb that is to be sacrificed, a type. And the antitype is Jesus Christ, and we can find that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It reads this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Passover lamb, the type, points forward to Jesus Christ, the antitype. Second one, and this is all we'll point to. Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. This is speaking about the serpent on the pole, that uh, serpents were biting people and they were dying because of the venom. And so Moses tells the people, well, if you look at this pole with this serpent on it, you're going to, you're going to live. You'll be saved. Do you, do you see the type and antitype? And so when you look at uh, medical clinics or if you go to the doctor and you see the pole with the snake or the serpent on it, this is where this picture comes from. And so some of you may be saying, like, how do you know, how do you know that that's a type? Because scriptures tell us it is. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And, Mo and as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Type, anti-type. So you see why it is so important for us to know our Old Testament. And we can see Jesus Christ's types in the Old Testament to be fulfilled in the New Testament. That with the background, now we can look at Melchizedek as a type. And the Lord Jesus as the anti-type, where the absolute fulfillment of the nature and the role of the high priest is to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, Melchizedek's only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then here in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7. Only three places that he's mentioned at all. We don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He just kind of just shows up in Genesis. 
interesting thing is he just kind of shows up in Genesis 14, and then it's not until a thousand years later that, the, that King David writes a psalm and then writes Melchizedek's name in there. And then it's another thousand years later until the author of Hebrews writes about Melchizedek again. And I find this really, really fascinating, especially in terms of a Christian apologetic, because there's an idea out there that all oh, these Christians just made up a religion and they're just kind of like in the future writing backwards. And so they're mentioning things that happened back there and they're saying, oh, it's all true and all prophetic and they made it true. But that's because they had historical records and then they wrote all this stuff and then going forward. So my question is, then when was the Bible written? Was it written in times of Moses? Was it written in, in the Psalm with King David? Or was it written when the author of Hebrews wrote the book and wrote all those historical books? And so here is an apologetic against that idea because here we have this really, really obsolete character in Melchizedek who is only mentioned one time in Genesis 14, mentioned one time in Psalm 110, and then not until Hebrews. And so a span of thousands and thousands of years Where's the group? Where's the group writing this stuff and going backwards? What it looks like to me is that it's all one author. One author who's going from the Genesis that's going thousands of years later to Psalms, thousands of years later to Hebrew, and it's one author that this is one of those really subtle proofs of the divine authorship of the Bible. That's just a side note. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." So we're told he is the king of Salem, which most scholars believe to be Jerusalem. And he's priest of the Most High God, namely the Most High of Righteousness and the Most High of, of Peace. And Melchizedek is the priest of this God. Again, a type pointing to Jesus Christ. Verse 3 tells us this about Melchizedek. Resembling the Son of God not the Son of God. So when people believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, he's not, because it's resembling. He is not the Son of God. Verse 3 also tells us, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, which has a lot of us really, really confused, because how does someone just appear? Like you had to have had a mother, right? Because even Jesus Christ incarnate had a mother. So like, how do you just appear? So when thinking about this, we have to think about context, and the context is all important in this. When we're looking at context, we're thinking about Levitical priesthood, because this is pointing to the high priest of the typology of Melchizedek to Jesus. So we're looking at context of high priest, and we have to look at Levitical priesthood, which directs back to ancestry, which, which directs back to lineage and genealogy because that is the all-important thing within Levitical priesthood. Genealogy is everything because you can't be a Levitical priest without being a descendant of Aaron. Not just a descendant of Aaron, but the Levitical priest's mother had to qualify as a priest's wife. Also, the Levitical priest needed a certification that was to be placed in a genealogical registry. 
And so you had to have proof that you were enrolled and registered as a Levitical priest, as well as come from the Aaronic line. And so you can find evidence of this in Ezra chapter 2. The background of Ezra chapter 2 is that the people are coming back from the Babylonian captivity. There's a list of people who are saying, I am from an Aaronic lineage. I can be a Levitical priest. And so then the background is, okay, you can if you show us the registry that you are indeed a Levitical priest. Because being a Levitical priest is a pretty sweet gig. Because a tenth of all the people's monies comes to you, and so your food is taken care of, and your living expenses are taken care of. And if you're thinking you're coming from slavery, Babylonian captivity, and you're going back, what am I going to do for work? How am I going to provide for myself, my family? I'm going to be a priest. And so when you're going back, it's not like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, and you're just like, oh, here's a little spit, and see, I'm a Levitical priest. I come from Aaronic line and all this stuff. It doesn't work that way because um, that doesn't get created till much later. You have to be part of a registry. And so here it picks up Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 and 62. Also, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai and Gileadite, and was, all, was called by their name, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so, they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Right? you got to show the paperwork. You can't just say, here I am, I, that's who I am. you got to show the enrollment. And so here, back to Hebrews, Melchizedek doesn't have a priestly lineage. There is no paper trail. He appears out of nowhere. And so verse 3 is written in this way because there is no attachment to origin. There is also no attachment to ending. We'll get that, to that a little bit later. Because he is the type of the one who will fulfill the high priesthood, the antitype, Jesus Christ, which has nothing to do with ancestry. And it goes on for eternity. To be the type of the fulfillment, we're given verse 3 as this kind of shadowy picture where genealogy is not given. And it's not given on purpose because he's a type. Something for us to keep in mind is how silence can be so informative and so loud. The Bible is silent about a lot of things, but it's actually speaking to us very loudly. So here's one of these examples. The background to Levitical priests is, you are from an ironic line, yes. So you are born, and, but from 1 to 25 years old, you're just a regular guy. You're not doing anything priestly. You're not doing any duties or anything. It's not till you're 25 years old that you can actually start interdisciplinary functions of the priest, but you're not actually doing functional things of the priest. You're kind of learning. So from 25 through 30, you're just kind of learning what's happening, and you're doing these interdisciplinary priestly functions. But it's not until you're 30 years old that you actually start ministering as a Levitical priest. But then when you're at 50... You're required to retire. Mandatory retirement at 50. Doesn't that sound just wonderful? I mean, I'm just like five years away from that. Thank you for providing for me. <laughs> you're 50 and you're done. You can't be a priest anymore. That's it. So what's the silence of this message? We are presented with an eternal priesthood from this type and the anti-type. 
that there isn't an end. But we know from Levitical priests, there is an end. So this first century audience who's hearing this is wondering, how does this work? There's no end? This guy is not from an Aaronic line? How can he be a high priest? Because he's not from the right lineage and there's no end when we know that when you're 50, you're done. And so you go back to type and context. Melchizedek is shown as this, no origin, no ancestry, and no end because he is a type of the high priest of Jesus Christ. And so he, you, you see the links. You see the connections of Melchizedek and Jesus. There is no record because his purpose of existence is to be a type, not to be high priest, to be a type foreshadowing Jesus' high priesthood whose basis of being high priest was not found on ancestry or lineage or genealogy, but it is founded on his sonship of God, that he is God's son, the personhood of Jesus Christ. That's what his high priesthood is founded on. So no earthly right to perform the rites of a Levitical priest, but the high priest nonetheless. So we know Jesus' right as high priest comes from his sonship, his personhood of God. But what about Melchizedek? How is he greater than all of those within an Aaronic line and Levitical priesthood if he doesn't even have the right lineage? How can that be? Verses 4 and 5. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, those, those, though these also are descended from Abraham. So what's going on here? Abraham is the granddaddy of everybody. Abraham is the patriarch. He is the man. Whatever Abraham says happens. Whatever, whatever Abraham wants gets done. That's the, that's the first century mindset of the audience that's hearing this. Abraham, he is the best. Abraham is, is the granddaddy of all of us. And so they, they also knew that the Levites received tithes. And that's how they, they lived. That, that people who are all descendants of Abraham gave to the priests, those Levites, to live. But then here's Melchizedek, who is extra special. He's extra special because he received tithes directly from Abraham, from granddad, the father of all, proving to the Jewish mind that Melchizedek is greater than all Levitical priests ever to come after. Far greater honor attached to Melchizedek because offering of the gifts was given by Abraham himself. Check out Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Yeah, so what? What's the big deal? Back to Hebrews 7, look at verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
Why is verse 7 a big deal? Because you have to look at who blessed whom. Who blessed whom? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Therefore, who is more superior? A first century Jew would never say this out of their mouth. Melchizedek. Melchizedek's greater. It's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the superior. Just like the father blesses his children, the children does not bless the father in this culture. And in the Jewish mind, the assumption would be that Abraham blessed Melchizedek, obviously, because Abraham's the superior. That's not the case, is it? That's not what the scriptures read. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, which also advances for us the type. Jesus as the antitype, that it advances Melchizedek as this greater one to the antitype Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 8, starting in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. When you've read that in the past, did you ever think that that was like a random number? Like, why 50? Remember the Levitical priest had to be done at 50 years old? So what essentially they're saying is, you're not even a priest. You're not from the Aaronic line. You're from the line of Judah. And even if we gave that to you and you were a priest, you would have just started your priesthood. So what do you know? You're not even towards the end of serving as a priest. So who are you? Who are you to say you've seen Abraham? And then it picks up, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so Melchizedek is the type, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this type, the anti-type. Back to Hebrews, verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So we know that the pre-service was done at 50 years old, and that these were all mortal men, that every single one of them died. But then you look at Melchizedek, and there is no recorded death. It's strange. And so Abraham pays tithes to what is looked at as an eternal priesthood. Melchizedek is without beginning, and here he's looking like he's without end again. It's a type. He's a type of Jesus Christ of the one who is to come. And Jesus Christ is the only priest to live eternally. Now, why is this significant? Because this whole entire time, they have been so reliant on someone going before the Holy of Holies and offering a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And so now, we don't have someone to do that for us? Then how are we going to be atoned for our sins before a holy God? Enter Jesus Christ, who says, my atonement on the cross pays for it once and for all. You don't have to go over and over every year to do this sacrifice because it is finished. I did it. It is all done. Let's go down to verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So Levi was this really, really great collector of tithes, and mainly from his blue jeans line. Um, So he was just collecting all this, and he became very successful. But even he, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. 
Verses 4 through 10 show us how Melchizedek is the greater priest than those of any in the Aaronic line, pointing to Jesus Christ. So now do you get a sense of how meaningful this typology is? No lineage, no beginning, no end. Pointing to some greater than Abraham. That Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of our high priest. That he is completely sufficient to cleanse us of our sins and usher us to holy God as high priest. Then in verses 11 through 19... What is foreshadowed in Melchizedek is the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? If perfection could be attained through a Levitical priest or any Levitical priest, why would another priest be needed? Because it's showing that perfection could not be attained that way. It can't be attained by a priest. It can't be attained by the law. And if the law or a priest could fully address our sins, could address knowing God and being adopted into the family of God, then there would be no need for another priest to fill in that role and to do what the law tells them to do. There would be no need for a an anti-type. But it is exactly showing that Melchizedek is the type. There is a gaping need until Jesus Christ fills it as the anti-type. So we do need another high priest. Not simply to imitate Melchizedek, but to be transformed by the Messiah himself. Transformed by God. Not to imitate Jesus Christ, but to be transformed by Jesus Christ. And to trans transfer anything that we hold on to, to Jesus Christ, to be taken over by God with a continued steadfast pilgrimage in believing and trusting in God for the rest of our life. Now, verses 12 through 14. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah does not serve as priests. There's nothing about that mentioned from Moses. And so the laws served as, as this temporary purpose. Otherwise, something eternal wouldn't be needed. The law was a foreshadow of the eternal grace to come through Jesus Christ. Something eternal to come so that all of these constant changes that were happening with priests coming over and over and over and over again would be done. That the eternal one, Jesus, who like Melchizedek, did not have an earthly right for being a Levitical priest. That Jesus' priesthood was not derived from genealogy, but from the personhood of God. For being God's son. Verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. Eternal. Indestructible. That is not any mortal priest. Jews have this significant heritage with Judaism 
in regards to sacrifices. But all that ceremonial ritualism changed with Jesus, who through his atoning sacrifice tore that curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world. Something that is really, really difficult for people to do is to leave their religion. All the social constructs, all the family dynamics within that, but even beyond those things, that we as people tend to hold on to things that we feel are tangible connections to a spiritual being. So whether that be an altar or a sacrificial system or a vestment or, or whatever it may be, we always wonder if there's anything at all to it that's more tangible that I can hold on to. And the writer acknowledges this struggle for first century Jews who have relied on a temple, who relied on altars, vestments, all these ceremonial things, cleansings, and is now pointing them and telling them that the priesthood with Jesus Christ is much greater than anything you're going to leave behind. Reminding them that Melchizedek is greater than any priest that came after. Go back there. Go back to that type. Because your father Abraham blessed him, not any other priest. Go back to him. Because he's going to point you to Jesus. Verses 17 through 19. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Verse 17 is quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, and then in verse 18 reads that a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, as it is also written in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The need was for a pure and spotless high priest to sacrifice himself. For his people that only God could provide because that what was provided by the law were sacrifices that had to be made year after year by high priests who were sinners themselves. So this cycle would never end. Because you would have a high priest who would come in who was sinful who would have to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could sacrifice for any of the other people as a priest. That cycle would never end. The only end to it was providing a solution where the high priest was pure and perfect and spotless without blemish, not to offer something else that didn't have a choice to be there or not like an animal, but to say, it's me. I'm going to do this once and for all. And then for us to be invited, inviting those who are separated from God to meet him at that place of sacrifice at the cross. That it's not a religion, but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That our dependence is not on a religion or doing good deeds, but before the cross of Jesus Christ. Pointing to that this law made nothing perfect. Otherwise, it would have been a permanent fixture in how to get to God. Then the question is, why does the law exist then? Because it is helping us to see the grace revealed in Jesus Christ. To see that here's Melchizedek, the type, 
And you're going to have to go through all of this law and find the fulfillment in Jesus Christ because this law is not going to deliver you from what you're cursed with. That you're only going to be able to get it from Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament provided redemption by sacrifice through the high priest. And it's the same in the New Testament, but our high priest is Jesus Christ who provided the perfect, everlasting sacrifice. One thing we could never do on our own is to go before a holy God and say we're sinless. It could never be done in the Old Testament. It could never be done in the New Testament. But then enter Jesus Christ who says, I'm going to tear this curtain that separates the Holy of Holies where God's presence is from the rest of the world. And I'm going to tear it and I'm going to allow access through me that you and I aren't to cling to those shadows anymore for, for, for real substance, which is in Jesus Christ. You don't have to hold on to those temples and altars and sacrifices and all those things, those religious things. You don't have to do that anymore. Now, how do sinful people draw near to God? And you're going to get all sorts of answers if you just take a walk on the lake and ask. But what does draw near to God even mean? This is not an exhaustive list, but it includes trusting God, receiving the forgiveness of sins, trusting in Christ's priesthood, persevering in faith, coming to God in your times of need, in your times of pain, doing the will of God. That's what drawing near to God is. And this was the purpose of the priest. The purpose of the priest was to draw people to God. And the law couldn't do that. And then in verse 19 it says we're offered a better hope. A better hope through Christ and his priestly function as he intercedes for us. We are brought into God's presence as we are anchored in Christ. Now in verses 20 through 28 we're given further instruction and some application. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So we are reminded that Jesus was made priest, not by lineage or law, but from an oath. And so we're taken back to Psalm 110 again, pointing us back to the superiority of the priesthood of Christ as King David wrote. And we talked about oaths last week, so if you want to hear more about that, just listen to last week's message. But the oath revealed this vital truth, that God will do exactly as he promises to do. He promises that. And his credibility, his character are dependent on this oath, are dependent on keeping his promises. And these promises that we find in the Bible are at the heart of our faith. Promises such as God's promise to Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ to bring blessing to all of Abraham's descendants. The reason why you and I are here, that churches are meeting on a Sunday, is on account that God promised Abraham to bless the nations. That's why we're here. And all of church history is on account to God keeping his promises. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The promise of Jesus fulfilled in the incarnation of Christ, providing the salvation in Christ that Jesus is our guarantor 
is the better covenant. 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That the priesthood is permanent. It's forever. There's no this, none of the switching anymore. Where those priests were temporary, no matter how dedicated, no matter how talented or able-bodied they were, if, even if they were allowed to continue past 50, they all died. So it was temporary, and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is everlasting. It's forever. Verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this is describing Jesus' omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, that his power is not limited. He secures our salvation because his power is unlimited and he is the source of our salvation. He is able to save us completely if we believe. That it is Jesus who is able to save. It is not you or I that is able to do this. Verse 26, For it, is, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. See, Jesus lives to intercede for you and for me. He's compassionate to our, our needs, and he empathizes with us a high priest who was clean not because of ritual cleansing not because he offered a sacrifice for himself first but because he by his nature is holy innocent unstained who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all and then verse 28 for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As we draw near to God, we're not drawing closer to religion. We are drawing closer to Jesus Christ who offers the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our consciences, to have peace with God and to have Hope everlasting. And at the cross, we see this perfect sacrifice where we are offered to be born again. That we don't have to remain who we used to be, but that we can be transformed by clinging to the promises of God, which are found in the Word of God. And in the letter to the Hebrews, we find this revelation, what God says to us. We also find plans of redemption, what God has done for us to have this access to Him. And within this promise is an oath to Abraham to bless the nations and to us that we can trust His Word and that we can rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the author of Hebrews who's able to bridge this obsolete type in the character of Melchizedek who we find just kind of randomly in Genesis 14 and then all of a sudden again in Psalm 110 and for the author of Hebrews to be able to bridge all of those things. We thank you so much for your word. 
We pray, God, for anyone here who is distant from you. Lord, we lift up that brother or that sister to you, asking that you would speak to them today, that they would hear your voice today, that they would be drawn to you, God, that they would place their trust in you, that they would seek forgiveness in you. In Jesus' name, amen.